This is Matt Freitas, and you're listening to the Late Night History Podcast. Tonight, we have a returning guest, former Navy SEAL Kirby Harrell. Kirby appeared on the podcast back in 2021, and we covered his early life and combat experiences in the Vietnam War. This time, Kirby shares his life after Vietnam, including founding several successful business ventures, returning to active duty to serve a career in the SEAL teams, and various anecdotes from his time in the teams. These include evacuating U.S. embassies in Africa, developing the Mark 46 and Mark 48 machine guns, and living on a boat in Hawaii and using his paddleboard to get to work every morning. Any waterman is no doubt jealous of that fact. Later in the episode, Kirby shares his involvement with the nonprofit Saved in America, which is doing noble work to recover children being human trafficked throughout the country. Saved in America is a team of former Navy SEALs private investigators, and former police officers who have safely located more than 250 children, with more than half rescued before being trafficked. Here is episode 31 with Kirby Harrell. come back from your tour in Vietnam, and that was in 1971, correct? Or 1970? 1970. 1970s, when I got back. And can you talk about um, what you did when you returned from Vietnam? I understand you started uh, a bunch of businesses, and then you went into the reserve unit? Yes, I did that. I did that. But for, but the, you know, getting down to the nitty gritty, what I did when I got back from Vietnam, like all Vietnam veterans, we had an adjustment to make to, to life because where we had come from, what we had seen, what we had experienced um, in the, in the name of, of doing right for our country, right? Because we all know now that the Vietnam war was a much, much a political war than anything else. So we came back and we, as, as soldiers had to kind of find our own way um, and adjust ourselves because in those days, we didn't have the Veterans Administration that we have today. You know, I went into the Veterans Administration, said I had some problems and the doctor said, why don't you just cut your hair and get a job? And I went, oh, well, thanks, man, you're, you're a genius. So, I left that place totally, you know, uh, baffled. And then I, I um, you know, I got on my, my Harley and I started riding. And, you know, and then one day kind of led into the next. You know, and the people that I met on my ride, I had very little money. I would work along the way uh, to get money to put gas in my gas tank, oil in my oil tank. You know, and I and I kept writing, but the Americans that I met on that trip, no matter what state I went to, no matter no matter what political affiliation they had and stuff, were true Americans. You know, they were there, they helped. You know, we sat down and had many conversations uh, with them for hours. 
I'd sleep wherever I could sleep. I'd get up in the morning, jump on my Harley and go for a ride again. You know, and there's many times I would stay and work at a filling station or some other place, feed stores and all that stuff, just to make some money so I could get back on my Harley and continue the trip. Well, I did that. I didn't make it to every state in the, in the United States, but I made it to a lot of them. You know, and a lot of people felt that, um, you know, we were wrong in coming back and, and being a, what um, looked at as, you know, as um, something other than soldiers. We were doing our duty, but they would come back and, you know, all of the things that went on in the 60s and the 70s when the Vietnam soldiers came back. We weren't welcomed very well in the United States. There was a whole lot of people out there and most of them were college students that didn't want to hear anything about us baby killers, right? Because of all the news stories that had been going on and, and we were the wrong ones. Well, the wrong ones, as you, will, as you found out, the wrong ones were in Washington, DC. The wrong ones were pushing a war because of the military machine that wanted that war to happen. So you had McNamara, who was a Looney Tune, right? And you had Johnson, who was hiding in the basement of the White House, calling out the, uh, calling out the combat situations in Vietnam. You know, and how many thousands and thousands of young men, name her on that, the Vietnam Memorial, that really didn't need to be there because of this. So that was, there was a lot of sorting out to do. And I did it on my, on my Harley ride around the country, uh, which I loved. Um, and then I came back to um, San Diego after probably about, I would say like six months on the road, uh, could have been plus or minus, but, you know, and then I started my Harley shop uh, in, um, in Imperial beach. And, uh, and that was, um, that was one of the first businesses I got started after I got home from Vietnam. Um, we had a lot of we had a lot of fun at that shop. A lot of crazy stuff went on at that shop, and and especially being on the beach in um, in San Diego, there was even more crazy stuff going on, right? So you know that that shop ran for probably I want to say about four years. I think I think probably about four years till I got into working on Navy ships and doing things down at the waterfront. My first business down there was a thing called um, Western Boiler South. And we had, uh, and we repaired boilers on Navy ships. I did 600 pound steam systems, which in those days we called stick shifts because it was like old World War II ships, right? And they muster up 600 pounds of steam and here we come and they would off, they'd go out of the harbor, you know? And then we started getting into the CGs and the, uh, the cruisers and they had 1200 pound steam systems, aircraft carriers, 1200 pound steam system. So uh, the business evolved, you know, into something really, really great. And then I sold that business probably around 82, 83, and got involved in the, um, in the shipyard over in Coronado called Rasboat Building Company, you know, and we started building, um, well, not building, but we repaired uh, tuna boats uh, before the tuna fleet left San Diego. 
and the um, and we did a great job on the net skiffs of because the net skiffs were the ones that pulled the big nets out of the back of the saners and you know and got the um, and caught all the the tuna for uh, bumblebee cannery that was here in San Diego, right? So that's why the saners were here. There were probably about eight of them, eight or nine of them that were uh, licensed to work out of San Diego. Then politics. Uh, and then the, um, the dolphin people about catching too many dolphins when they were catching tunas. And then the, uh, the escape net was created. And, you know, it, it kind of started getting um, politics involved in it. Right. And, I, you know, and I, I think the country at those times were, I mean, still recovering from Vietnam. So that was uh, something that and I you know, most most of the veterans that I knew in those days were they were taking care of themselves, self-medicating. Right. As far as how do I adjust from this? Do I have PTSD? We didn't even know what PTSD was in those days, to be honest. You know, we knew we woke up in the morning, we felt good, but not everybody did. There was a tremendous amount of people that went to the bottle and they went to the bottle to and were looking for answers at the bottom of that bottle. I know I had more than one friend that from Vietnam that would stay in their rooms and basically hide in their closet because they had so many bad nightmares from Vietnam and and many of them passed away with that kind of um, a mindset that you know there was always somebody coming to get them because the VA did such a bad job I mean the VA I think was trying to do a good job I don't think anybody had done anything like this before because if you think back to the veterans of World War II, what did they come home to? There was not even a veterans administration that um, was involved in healthcare in those days. So that was, um, that was the sad part about uh, coming home from Vietnam and adjusting to society. You know, another part was the Agent Orange thing that I um, am just, devastated about because many of my cohorts, not so much SEAL team members, but regular army guys, you know, they were doused with Agent Orange and had it very bad. And there's many that have died from cancer from the Agent Orange, but that's not the lasting effect. The lasting effect is that stuff get transferred to their kids, you know, and their kids today, a big article about their kids suffering from Agent Orange. Now I know that there were a lot of kids that were not born perfect, I think is the best way to put it because of this Agent Orange and what it did to your body and what it did to their body and how they pass it on to the next generation. I saw enough of that, that it just made me sick. Um, you know, and everybody's slow on the uptake of that. I mean, look, we're, we're in 2023, and I just read an article about the, the lasting effects of Agent Orange on individuals. I mean, we have a, a whole nother generation that has those things running around in their bodies. It's kind of like, you know, how everybody denied the nerve agent that we had in, um, in Iraq, 
that because they were blowing up all of the the ammo dumps and there's nerve agent in those ammo dumps and for the longest time the veterans administration said no it's not happening it's not it was happening and you just needed people just needed to listen to what the soldiers were saying i think you know we have a tendency in this country to um forget about the people that bring the issues up and the issues get packed passed to um some specialist or some buddy that is, I don't want to say they're paid to divert attention from it, uh, but I will say that they're paid to divert attention from that friggin' problem. And they, and nobody goes back to the soldier and spends the time. Thank God that they did that. Um, and the, it was a veterans administration. So there's a lot of good people in the veterans administration says, Hey, listen, you know, this is serious stuff. We've got enough complaints. Let's find out and run it to ground. And they did. And they found out that the, that this agent of, from blowing up those ammo dumps, that there were, there was a nerve agent in that, in that ammo that nobody knew about. And it, the people that were doing the demolition work were the ones that were affected. Not only that, but people on the base were affected. So, you know, it's kind of like it goes down the same thing with Agent Orange. I mean, Agent Orange was denied for, I, I want to say probably 40 years, maybe, maybe less. And then finally, the Veterans Administration comes up and says, well, yes, we're going to do Agent Orange. So they put out a big, you know, uh, paper and things like that on it. So finally, all those people and many of, of the ones had died from it now are getting compensated for it. So that's a blessing. That's a blessing. And that's why we have to, uh, to stay, stay with the program. The program works as long as there's good people on the other side of the program that in, in real life are willing to wish, risk their ass and their jobs to say, hey, this is wrong, right? Uh, in our society, we don't have that very much anymore. Everybody wants to go along with the liberal program of saying, oh, kicking the can down the road. Fine example. How about immigration? Immigration's can has been kicked down the road for 50 years, right? And we're still kicking it down the road. Every time anybody mentions that, you know, we could resolve this immigration problem once and for all, a lot of hoopla about, oh, yeah, yeah, let's talk about it. And then nothing happens. Yeah, it never kinda, goes anywhere. Kind of along the same lines as let's build the infrastructure of our nation. Well, I still have the same potholes that we're dodging on freeways in California. So where's that infrastructure money going? The problem is it goes into the general fund and then who's ever in office who's never had a day in business in his life, thinks he's gonna be able to spend that money correctly, right? If it was left up to me, nobody would be elected to a political office unless they owned a business and they know what it's like to make payroll on Friday, right? Because the pressure is on. So that's, you know, those are the things that I, 
I just commented on, but at the same time, I want yeah, to we're going down a rabbit hole, hole, but I also wanted to, um, so you, you have your businesses, but while you're in that, while you had your businesses, you're also in the reserve unit. And can you talk about the reserve unit before? Um, like, I think do SEAL teams now have like each SEAL team has their own reserve unit. Was it different yes, back when you uh, had it? Well, yeah, the history of that is in, in 1975, right when i got off active duty um we started reserve unit um the first serve seal unit and the um reserve unit was called pack 119 well it started here in coronado and then shortly after that then we there was another one started over on the east coast well that turned pack 119 turned into a couple of different names um but then where it's at today so you have um you have two groups, one on each coast that control the reserve units. And then they have, I think, one or two teams underneath them. So that's what it is today. And today, it's fantastic. It, the guys go from active duty to the reserves. And I'll always talk about the reserves because I think it's a wonderful place to go after you get off active duty because it allows you to kind of a taper off you know, from being high speed on active duty, deploying all the time, doing the nation's work and everything else. And when you come down off of that, if you go in the reserves, then you have a job, a regular job that you go to, hopefully you're making a lot of money, or you married money. Now there's the secret <laughs> is, um, and then you go from there, to the reserve unit, you still on the weekend, you still get to do all the cool stuff. You get to go shooting, you get to jump out of airplanes, you get to go diving, you know, you get water survival training, um, you get cold weather training, water survival training is uh, going down the Colorado River on through the rapids and all that kind of stuff, saving your life, very cool. And then the uh, cold weather training is you find some you know, ski resort and practice your, your cold weather tactics as you're coming down the slopes. So that's all good stuff. But the, um, yeah, but the reserve units have evolved. I mean, just as much as the teams have evolved into where they are, are better prepared than we were ever better, better prepared or, or prepared in the past because they continually are in a training mode on the weekends and they are the ones that take care of like long-term type training that our active people don't have like on the on the drones they work a lot on drones they work a lot on comms you know so that that stuff that they learn on the reserve side can be pushed down to or pushed up I should say to the active duty side and then they have, there's always continuity there. So if there's a deployment coming up and they need a reservist, then all they have to do is request and they're both funded. So the reservist can come back on active duty. In some cases, like I did, you know, they come back on, they come back on for the reserve duty and depending on what's happening in the world, they can rotate over and come right back on active duty because all of their quals are current, you know, they, they know what 
being on active duty is like, and they've been, and they're prepared for it because they're continually training while they're in the reserve unit, which is, which I, I think is fantastic. And you were in the reserves for 15 years and you were recalled to active duty in 1990. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. So our reserve unit, like once a month, we would always go. And I was a business guy in San Diego doing what I did, right? And then in 1990, I sold my last business and I came to reserve unit um, that night. It was Friday night and um, our commanding officer, Desert Storm was just starting and our commanding officer said, I need some volunteers because Desert Storm's coming and we need to get guys over there. So is there anybody in the room that thinks they, uh, they want to go back on active duty? Well, needless to say, my right hand went up. So the, um, and several other people's right hands went up. So, you know, we got called back to active duty, probably took like a week to get us from the reserve status back to active duty. And then I mustered with SEAL Team 3 and got ready to do what I needed to do at SEAL Team 3. So I was at SEAL Team 3 and I was there until 1992. They kind of kept me on longer because some of the things I was doing at the team. Um, and so it was either that or I was such a screw up. They didn't want to let me back out on the streets. I don't know which, I don't know which one that was, but they, um, and then they, they came and wanted to know if I could uh, stay on active duty. Um, and I said, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a little old to be remaining on active duty. And they said, well, let's, you know, we'll just have to shoot it to the secretary of the Navy. So there was like myself and 12 other people, you know, so we put the normal request in through the reserve channels and they came back naturally and were denied because we were too old. How so old were you? I was 44 at the time. Right. And so I think it was 44. Yeah. 44. And uh, I could have been 45, but the, um, so I had to reach out to some of the people that I had known in that, uh, in the world. And so I did. So we got with our Congressman, Duncan Hunter, the old Duncan Hunter, that was a great guy. You know, he's a spec ops guy in Vietnam, Green Beret, uh, did a wonderful job over there, did a wonderful job as a congressman and asked him. And he, um, I went in his office, we wrote a letter together and we pushed it off to the secretary of the Navy. Well, the secretary of the Navy gets the, um, gets the letter from the congressman. Lo and behold, one of the people that works with the Secretary of the Navy is a four-star admiral, um, close proximity, but his name was Admiral Smith. Well, Admiral Smith was one of my boat drivers in Vietnam. And, I, uh, and I, he remembered me from the hellacious times we had in Vietnam. He almost died like eight times. Don't worry, sir, we're going to get home. Drink some whiskey. <laughs> so... He, um, he remembered me and, and uh, just put a bug in the uh, Secretary of the Navy's ear and said, hey, man, get this guy back on active duty. So uh, lo and behold, the, uh, the, the reserve coordinator in uh, Washington, D.C. got a phone call from the Secretary of the Navy's office, said, 
we want these 12 guys back on active duty. So the next day, it took a day to get me off the reserve status, back on active duty status. So I was back on active duty, came back on active duty in 1992, and then uh, stayed um, until late 2014. That's when I retired. So, uh, you know, it was. All I'd like one- to cover before. It, I'd like to cover in between that. So, okay. Um, so you're still at SEAL Team Three in 1992. Yeah, and then I got orders to because um, of a friend to help me. Uh, got me orders to Stuttgart, Germany, because we were pushing. Um, we were pushing out to Stuttgart, Germany, to work over there um, with UCOM. Uh, because we were opening up Africa and they needed special operations people. They also needed special operations people to take over the embassy survey program, which was called originally the RST, regional security um, people. And, they, um, and then they changed the name of it as we, as we went down line. But originally it was the RST teams and I was the maritime member of that. And we had a lot of instructions from Delta and SEAL Team 6 about how these things were carried on because we built a lot of packages that they would use in the future, right? And uh, so we were on that and I deployed probably about 12 different times to embassies uh, all over the Soviet Union in Africa, you know, the ones in Africa were always, uh, always entertaining, right? So we, uh, I'll tell you about one of them. The, uh, it was the, uh, the Liberia one, was it the, um, well, we'll do the Liberia one first. There were a number of them, but the Liberia one was basically we, we got the call. And in those days, we didn't have cell phones. We had beepers. Right. So I'm in Stuttgart, Germany, having dinner with my wife and the beeper goes off. That was one beeper. Then another beeper goes off because I had one from the teams. I had one from UCOM. So both the beepers go off and I tell my wife, hey, listen, honey, um, we got to pay the bill. I got to go to work because we had standing orders N plus two. That means when the beeper went off, you had two hours to get to the airport and have your shit together because you were leaving. So off we went, right? I had to go get all my gear, get ready. My wife was going, where are you going? I said, I'm going to work. And she goes, what does that mean? And I said, I'm going to work. I mean, that's what I get paid for. So I got all my gear, my guns, ammo, grenades, all that stuff. And off I'm headed to the airport. Well, we get to the airport and they're loading a, a C-130, which was the, uh, the 352nd out of Mildenhall. They were right there with the bird and we were back in the Humvees on. Well, as we're back in the Humvees on, I go, I thought these Humvees are supposed to be armored. Unfortunately, not. So we get them on, we get off the ground, we're headed, right? We're headed to a place that uh, I had never been before, but um, 
we took off, we're headed down there, and then I get an idea while we're on, if they're not armor, I'll get a big felt tip marker and write armor on the side of them. That'll, that'll fool them. So, so needless to say, we, um, as we're coming into the airfield in, um, oh, you know what? Uh, in Bra I'm going to tell you, it was Brazzaville that this happened at. We're going to Brazzaville, Congo. So the Brazzaville, Congo, we got in there and the, um, this, the 352nd, there's a firefight in the, you know, in the airport. And they're going, we don't know if we can stop. I said, well, just lower the tailgate and we'll drive off of this frigging plane and get to work. So they're coming down, they land, the tailgate goes down, they're taxing down the runway, getting ready to take back off. And we're driving the Humvees out of the back of the, uh, of the, of the C-130. The 352nd got an award for it. The people that were riding and doing all the work didn't get anything. I want you to know that. So off we went. We got, we got the uh, Humvees off. We got them parked, and there's a firefight going on. Well, we have to get in the middle of the firefight to you know squash the whole things down to get off of the airport. And um, so we parked the Humvees, got out, and just uh, get behind a barrier and just start open fire, right? It was the... Uh, it was the Cobras and the Ninjas. That those were the two people that were fighting in Brazzaville at the time, right? And the U.S. Embassy happened to be right in the middle of them. That's why we got the call. So off we went, right? We landed at the airport. I start shooting. And the Army guys, I'm looking at them going, what are you guys doing? They go, well, they told us we were going to get ammo at the embassy. I said, what? What? So I had to give up my magazine so we could all get in the firefight. So we did. We got in the firefight. The firefight probably lasted like maybe 15 minutes, right? And, you know, we blew those people out. And then in comes a, from the other direction, in comes the Foreign Legion. Because the Foreign Legion, the French Foreign Legion is there because there's a French uh, embassy right there in uh, Brazzaville. So um, it was... Uh, that was pretty good. I mean, the foreign, the French foreign legion, great bunch of guys, you know, I mean, it's a ragtag group. Right. Yeah. But to our benefit, probably, I want to say 20% of them are Americans, old army soldiers that got out and just after Vietnam and, and some of them, you know, after regular army got out and went down there and, and joined the foreign legion. So it was easy to communicate with them and everything else. So after that firefight, we got ourselves situated and everything else. They took us to the embassy. We got to the American embassy in Brazzaville and they, that had told us they were in help. They needed help. So after we got there, we got the gates open. We went to the front door. Front door was locked solid. We had to call the um, ambassador through the State Department and say, hey, man, open the freaking front door. I'm not, I don't want to blow it. So what they had done in the embassy was they had, they had gassed the whole embassy and went and hid in their safe room because of rockets and things hitting the embassy. So that's where we found them all. So we opened the place up, opened all the windows, got rid of the CS as much as possible. You never get rid of it. And uh, got the embassy staff uh, and the ambassador out of the safe room. 
got them to a point where it seemed it was uh, relatively safe. We got sniper positions in, we got comms going on on the roof. Uh, so we're talking to the State Department, talking to UCOM and everything else and letting them know what the situation is. Well, the embassy had been storing all their garbage inside the embassy for like two weeks. And I went, what is that smell? And they told me it was a garbage in, in the back room. I said, well, we're dragging it outside and setting it on fire. They had a big burn pit out there. So I drug all this stuff out. Here I am with the, my cape, my uh, body armor on and my helmet and my machine gun dragging the trash out of this embassy, right? <laughs> and the, the guys that were with us were helping. And we got it all out there in a big pile and we just poured gasoline on it and set it on fire, right? And then we came back in to take care of business because you got to... You have to survey the embassy knowing what kind of levels of rations, bullets, water, diesel fuel, all this kind of stuff that makes it relevant um, there. So we did we did all that, got our survey done. And then the ambassador asked, can you guys take the Marines out to their houses in town and get their personal stuff and bring them back to um, back to the embassy, back to safety? And we said, well, sure, let's go. So we fired up our armored tag Humvees, put American flags on the uh, on the hood, right, and took these uh, took the Marines out to their homes, you know, that were in where they were living off of uh, outside of the embassy to get all their stuff and to clean out their freezers and all that kind of stuff because we may have needed the food. We didn't know how long we were going to be there, so off we went, you know, and and some of the things that we encountered as we were taking these Marines back to their houses. Some was very unsafe, right? You know, there was every, everybody down there was running around with the AK-47. And a lot of the young ones don't know, didn't know what safe was and what safe wasn't. So you'd look at the AK-47 right away and see if it was, if it had the safe on. And if it didn't have the safe on, then he was a target a quick one because he would be the first one to go down. So that was the, um, that was our adventure out there. So that lasted like all one afternoon. I mean, we were probably doing that for like six hours, going from house to house, setting up perimeters, getting all the stuff out of the Marines houses, getting them back in the Humvee, taking them back to the embassy. And then our last trip, our last trip out in town, it turned dark on us. Right. So um, as on, we're headed back to the embassy and all of a sudden we come into a roadblock and I go, holy shit, a roadblock. What's this? And every one of the bad guys had blue latex gloves on that they had gotten from rifling the grocery store. Right. What women use the wash dishes in. They all had them. And I went, oh shit, this is a, this is a, a bad crew, right? So um, they come up to the car and I've got my nine millimeter pointed right at his face inside the door, right? And I told everybody in the Humvee, I said, get ready. I'm going to drive over this guy that's in front of me and you take out everybody that's in your sight picture because we're leaving, right? And so 
we were just getting ready. I mean, it was two seconds away from me dropping the hammer on this guy standing to my door and their supervisor pulls up and just waves everybody off. And I went, holy shit, holy shit. That was wild. And the, the army guy was with me in the back goes, holy shit, holy shit. And we had a, we had an army, army colonel with us, which I'll never forget. Great, great man. He was going, holy shit, Kirby, you weren't even nervous. You were just telling everybody exactly what you were going to do. I said, well, what else would I do? <laughs> so, so he was, uh, he was impressed. He was a good guy. And, uh, and so after that little spat off, we went back to the embassy to get, um, get ready for the next day. Right. So it was wild. So that, um, well, we, we got back and we had to, we had to have, no, that was the next day. So we got back, everybody, MREs, everybody went down because the next morning we we're getting up Seabag, uh, I mean, um, Sandbag Brigades because I we needed to fortify the comm station inside the, um, the embassy, right? So I had everybody, embassy personnel and everybody else, everybody but the ambassador out there shoveling sand in a sandbag so I could make a fortified position inside the embassy so we could keep the top keep the communications with state department and ucom you know on track so we got all that done working around just taking care of stuff we had to go over to the uh i had to drive the ambassador up to the tower um to put batteries in the cell tower so we could keep communicating through the cell tower so that was, we took one of the big armored Humvees with the American flag on. There. I was cracking up every time I was going down the road, armor. I wonder if these guys can even read. Right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we got back, we got back to the embassy and then I put my, uh, my vest on and helmet and went outside and started barbecuing, Right. And everybody in the embassy is going, what the hell are you doing? I go, hey, man, it's barbecue time. You know, so I was out there with my helmet, my, uh, my vest on, and um, my machine gun cooking hot dogs and hamburgers for everybody in the uh, embassy. And it was just, it was classic. If you could see that, here we are in a war zone. Kirby's out there cooking, barbecuing for people. <laughs> it was wild. That was, that was a wild adventure. So we had about, we had about three more days of that before we were able to fly the embassy staff out and get ourselves so flown out. So we, we started preparing to close the embassy up and uh, we found a plane uh, that was a World War II, I think, um, C-47 that was, that I could fly the embassy staff out on. So we're making plans to do that, fly out, fly the embassy staff. I think there was 12 of them and we we're going to take them to the airport. We get ready to go and the ambassador goes, wait, wait. I go, what's wrong, sir? And he goes, well, I got to take the cash with me that's in the safe. I said, well, how much cash is it? He goes, oh, it's about a million bucks. And I went, oh my God, right? So I said, where's the comm to the safe? He goes, uh, I don't know. 
I go, great. Now I'm going to have to put a penny charge on it and blow the safe and burn all the money up. And so the, we looked around and we found the combination to the safe. Finally, it was in a bottom desk drawer. Um, and we opened the safe, we took all the money out and put it in a, uh, put it in a dip bag. Right. And I handed it to the, uh, I handed it to the, uh, ambassador, even though I should have just taken them all out and left and went to the Bahamas. <laughs> but the, uh, we handed it to the ambassador and we drove to the airport and put them on this uh, C-47, which was uh, an old parachute plane from, and, and the pilot was there and he was ready to go. So he, we got them on board and got those guys flown off. We came back, we drove back to the embassy, closed the embassy up and, uh, and the French uh, Foreign Legion come down and, and uh, escorted us to the airport where the, um, the C-130 from Mildenhall came and, and picked us up and that adventure was over. But it was, uh, it was a wild ride while it was going on. And that was, uh, and there's many, many more of those. And what year the, was uh, that? But that was, a, that was, that's a good story for today. There'd be another one, another one the next time. Yeah, but sounds I, good. I, you know, so I think the, um, and then we'd, we'd come back to Stuttgart, right? And in Stuttgart, because I was working the ISP program, then we would build the packages for that. Certainly we had to get a debrief from that whole thing. Um, and, you know, and the State Department was thankful and all that kind of stuff. We got everybody out alive. Nobody died, right? So that was... Uh, that was an adventure, but flying back from uh, Africa or flying to Africa is a long ass plane ride, man. You know, got I think we refueled on that trip twice wow. getting down there. Yeah, yeah, it was wild, wild ride. But it was, that was a good that was a good one. And then we came then we came back to Stuttgart, right? After being in hot ass Africa. And what's happening in Stuttgart? the fucking winter freezing ass cold <laughs> i'm going holy shit man you just can't make this stuff up so it was that was the uh, that was adventure we were able to be home for probably about three weeks which was good you know um but then the next one then the next one took off anyway i left um i left uh, stuttgart in 90 no 99. 99 is when I took off from Stuttgart and came back to um, work at Group One as the ammo coordinator. And that's when we wrote the, um, the Ords and the Mins for the Mark 46 and the Mark 48 came later. But we wrote the Ords and the Mins and started that process of getting the um, FN um, 556 belt fed machine gun built so we put all that together because i've you know i was one of the original stoner guys so i love my stoner right and the um and then when i so i helped build the uh the mark 46 from the ground up with from fn we did all the uh all the testing and shooting down at reed's nice place in um in florida and i think that that was 
just fantastic. I mean, we Florida, it was a wonderful state. You know, Reed could go right out in back of his house and shoot machine guns all day long. And I went, man, where was this at? You know, it was just fantastic, fantastic. So we did all of the testing down there and the, um, you know, and did the selection basically of what machine gun was going to go forward for the testing. When the, um, when the Mark 46 was designed, um, one of the big arguments I got into with the engineers was I wanted a fluted barrel on the, a weapon like was on my stoner. Uh, and they wanted a, they wanted a smooth barrel. I said, well, let's, let's compete the two after a number of arguments. I said, let's compete the two and see which one does the best. So we went to crane and shot like 3000 rounds or tried to shoot 3000 rounds through the two different barrels. And my fluted barrel held up way longer, way longer than theirs. So needless to say, the engineers all hated me, you know? So, but anyway, that's the reason why the fluted barrel is on the uh, Mark 46 today, because it was, it was designed and worked like a champion on my stoner. Cause I could put a thousand rounds through that stoner and that barrel that just keep on ticking, man. So the, um, so that gun was built um, and uh, did all the testing, everything else on that. I have some great people to thank, uh, you know, our Admiral at the time um, was uh, very supportive of it and kind of pushed the, uh, pushed the envelope on that. So, you know, it was, um, it was good. The Hulk was a good Admiral. So I, um, I think that uh, he, he, you got to thank them and you got to thank the people that at um, PMS uh, 390, I think is what it was in, um, in Washington, D.C., because when they built the, the thing for the Mark 46, it was just a trial run. So we tested it. They built 1,500 of them to kind of disperse them to uh, other people because it was going to take the place of the saw because ours was fully automatic and didn't have a selector to go, you know, single shots like a saw does, right? doesn't have a magazine. We got rid of the magazine well and all that kind of stuff. Ergonomically, we made it a lot better weapon, I think. And so a lot of people are going to that. And then what happened, because that weapon was such a fire breather and proved itself, that's when we, um, not, you know, when we decided to do the Mark 46, because at the time we were having huge problems with the M60 machine gun. And we decided to take what the Mark 46 had and pushed to the Mark 48. So about 90% of the parts and pieces are the same on the Mark 48 that they are on the Mark 46. It's just a 7.62 gun. It's much, much heavier, right? As we used to say in Vietnam, between the 5.56 guys and the 7.62 guys, I would tell my 60 guy, I said, listen, I'm gonna make them dance you put them on the ground. All right. So that's, that's the reason what happens with five, five, six and seven, six, two bullets, five, five, six bullets coming so fast. It hits them, makes them dance. A seven, six, two round hits them. They're going in the mud. You can count on it. So those are, um, that's what brought those two weapons into our inventory. And they've both 
are, are both fire breathers. Everybody loves those guns. So I'm just, uh, and you know, the, um, the Mark 46 became one of FN's best sellers, you know, so the Mark 48. So uh, I think we did a lot for the company. The company did a lot for us at, at special operations because um, you need to have good, you got to have good hardware, man, right? Were the SEALs the first uh, unit to use the Mark 46? Yes. Yep. And, and the Mark 48. I mean, you know, one of my adventures, which was another adventure in Africa, I was over there flying down on a helo and SEAL Team 2 guys got on board with the new Mark 48s. I went, shit, I got to shoot it. I got to <laughs> shoot it. So I did all the paperwork for the weapon, did and it kind of got the testing started and stuff with other guys. And, uh, but I never got to shoot the gun. So out of the back really? of that helo <laughs> flying into, uh, where are we going? Oh, we're going into Liberia then, going into Liberia. I was shooting that gun out of the back of the helo. It was wild, wild, man. <laughs> I think I heard you say, I think it was on uh, the Jocko podcast with Liberia. You said they were um, like a cannibalism type uh, community. Yeah, yeah. Well, and going into Liberia, that's a whole nother story. I shot the 60, right? I mean, the Mark 48 out of the back of the um, thing. I shooting it. Beautiful, beautiful. I walk back up to where I'm at in the helo. I take my body armor off and set it on my seat. And all the young seals are looking at me going, why'd you just do that? I go, well, bullets come from underneath the helo. They don't come in the side. No shit. I go, yeah. So if you don't want to get a bullet up your ass, you better be setting on your body armor. And so, so everybody made that change. And not 10 minutes later into that flight, I'm standing at the door. Uh, where the door gunner's at with a minigun going in on the bird. And what do we see? We see a rocket team coming out of the jungle to try to shoot a, a rocket at the, at the helo. I pointed it to the gunner and I say, take them out, take them now. And he goes, and hits it with that minigun. All you seen was the red flash. I went, thank you. Thank you, man. <laughs> That was wild. That was wild. That was scary. That was a scary time. Liberia was a, was a whole different set of rules, man. There was a lot of, um, a lot of stuff going on there. We landed in Liberia and that's in the, when they get the term Africa hot, that's where it comes from. Cause you stepped off that helo. It was easily, easily 120 degrees. And you're just going, Holy shit. That's another story for another time. You know, I could talk about that for hours because that was, we rescued so many people. That time it was unreal. Just like it was before in Brazzaville. Brazzaville, we rescued tons of people too. But, you know, and it's, it, those kind of things never get mentioned at right. all. Yeah, it's because it's not newsworthy, right? Or it's not a political thing. It's about saving people's lives, you know? And that, so those are, those are just, it's just wrong. It's wrong. I mean, that's why we have freedom of the press. The freedom of the press should talk about that. So should, they should have, you know, a military news station that talks about, you know, how these kind of things are, are happening 
and the good things that the military is doing. It's not, uh, you know, maybe it's got OPSEC going with it. Maybe it's uh, some things, but I mean, when you're saving people's lives, people should know about that, you know, especially Muslims' lives. The, you know, how many, how many Muslims' lives did we save in Herzegovina and in Kosovo? And there's not, nobody talks about that at all. I mean, yeah. I was there. I was there. I seen the war. I seen what the Serbs were doing to those poor people, you know? And so it was like, wow. That to me, Herzegovina was probably, probably the, I don't, I want to say the most, I, maybe in fact, well, it was just, it was carnage. It was carnage because there were people with guns shooting people with no guns, right? Most of the wars I'd been in were both sides had guns. So you just better be qu better, quicker and a better aim to win. But in there in Bosnia Herzegovina, you didn't have that. You just had carnage. You had people that are trying to eliminate back to uh, Nazi Germany, where they're trying to eliminate as many people as they could because they didn't have guns. So they were at their mercy, right? And what uh SEAL team were you at when you when you were in Bosnia and were you going after the Pickwicks at that time? Uh, we had other people that were going after Pickwicks that at the time, yes. And I was over at the um, unit in Stuttgart, Germany. Yeah, so all that was going on. I really can't talk about the Pickwicks, but the um, I knew all about it. You know, and I knew what they were going through. I knew what we were doing. Um, so. It was, um, it was, a, it was a good thing. I mean, the, they were, they, uh, the, when the Pickwick's program got started, yeah, there were people serves running all over the place, trying not to get caught. Right. Cause, cause they were getting caught regularly. So yeah, it was, uh, that was very interesting. Very, very interesting. But that's, that's what I did. Um, after I came back on active duty. And I came back on active duty. And then after I came home from those spots uh, that I went to Spain, I did more um, work in Africa um, when I was in Spain. Um, and then I started working and training with the, um, with the Spanish um, Special Forces, which was a lot of fun. Bunch of great, great guys there. And then the Portuguese. Uh, we started training with the Portuguese special forces. That was a lot of fun. They, the Portuguese ate really well and they have good wine. And so does the Spaniards. I mean, it was, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty much fun over there. Um, we didn't go to war with those guys at all, wrong timing, but we did a lot of great, great training that I know are serving them well today um, and got that going. We taught them how to do um, shipboarding, you know, spent a lot of time with that because that's one of the criteria they use over there. So I know they're doing it in exactly the same way we taught them to do that. Um, and then I came home from, I came home from um, Spain in what? 2000, 2005. Yes. 2005. Where were you on 9-11? Uh, in Spain. Okay. Yeah, in Spain. We were in Spain. Um, 
I walked, I walked into the training um, room when we're in Spain and I saw it on TV and I said, what movie is this? And one of my other instructors go, Kirby, it's not a movie, man. America's just been attacked. So a whole new set of rules came out then, right? So that was, um, it was just wild, wild. But after I got home from there, um, then I, um, where I came home from in 2005. Oh, and then we started, um, then we started trade debt. That's when the trade debts started one and two. And I was the ops chief at that particular time in starting uh, trade at one. Can you explain and what that is? Do what now? Can you explain what trade stands for and like what that um, like? Unit oh, that's, does? Our, that's our training arm of NSW. We had gotten to the point where we needed to centralize the training efforts for all of the teams. And that's what we put together. We started putting together, it's kind um, of long. you know, we had an op shop naturally, but we also had training departments that dealt with land warfare, that dealt with CQB, that dealt with snipers, it's maritime, you know, all those different departments so we could put SMEs in them and keep the focus on a, the best training we could possibly give these guys. And that's what we did. So it was, uh, it was a good start. I was there for probably about, I want to say two years. And that was 2003. That was 2003 when we started that. And then, um, and then I picked up, then I rolled from there to, um, oh, my, my good buddy, Doug McNutt, who was the detailer, calls me up one day because I'm for orders. Naturally, I figure I'm going to stay right there at, uh, at Trade Ed. But what had happened is one of the guys that had been over in Iraq at the time and got injured, uh, he was a mass chief. And I said, why don't he come and take my position and recover because I was up for orders and I'll go back to the teams or whatever, right? And then my good buddy, Doug McNutt, calls me from Millington and goes, oh, Kirby, I've got a hard to fill position. I go, I'll take it, man. Where is it? He goes, it's Hawaii. I go, what? Hawaii? How could Hawaii possibly be a hard to fill spot? And he goes, it is, it is. We need you over there. And I went, okay, well, then just sign me up. I'm going to go explain it to my wife and see what's going on and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of, lot of personal drama happened. Then my wife got sick and all that kind of stuff. And I had to go unaccompanied. But the, um, so when I, on my way to SDVs, which, okay, now I'm probably, I want to say probably 55 or thereabouts. And and the orders come and they go, oh, you're going to SDV school. I went, what? SDV school? Get out of here. So I can't even see the, you know, they send me to SDV school in Panama City, Florida. Well, you know, I'm in a submarine. I'm in a little submarine driving a or trying to drive a little submarine. I was not the best student because I couldn't get my glasses inside my 
my my goggles. I should have had goggles built because I couldn't see. I was trying to drive the dashboard and I couldn't see shit. <laughs> so, so it was real fun. So I I attempted to get it. We made it through class, but I wasn't the best student, right? And I knew that my career was not going to be driving SDVs. So, so I made it through the school and then off I went to um, SDV Team 1 in, uh, in Pearl City. I arrived there um, thinking I'm going to do a, uh, a job. And so anyway, I go into ops. They put me in the ops because there's a, a, um, a, a open spot there. So I go in the ops. And I work ops over there for probably about a year, which is very cool. A uh, lot of great, wonderful men over there in uh, Hawaii. They were just coming off of, and we, uh, in the middle of that is when the um, lone survivor situation happened. So that's when the, um, when I was there and lone survivor happened. So we had a huge, huge loss um in that in the particular team so we had to go through funerals and, and get everybody uh taken care of and it was a miserable miserable time the um and it was the worst loss ever and i did a podcast or i didn't do a podcast but the the chaplain that we had at the teams in the time wonderful man he did a, a podcast on what it entailed to take care of all those family members and to be able to um, deliver the bad news to them um, about what had happened overseas. Um, it was heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching. Anyway, after that time, after that time I um, got to um, start doing the uh, CSO. So I was in charge of the diving departments, the air departments, and the, uh, and I worked as CSO. So it was, um, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. I loved Hawaii. I, I didn't want to leave Hawaii. Um, and the, um, after I did that, then the opening came up um, for, before you go into that, uh, yeah. can you just explain what STVs are for like if someone never heard of what they are, uh, say again. Can you like explain what uh, the seal delivery vehicle teams do? Oh, just kind of like in general. SD SDV is a uh, is basically a mini sub that launches you know out of uh, a bigger submarines and goes to all points um, in the world. So um, it's a wet submarine very, very cold. Um, technology is, is great. Um, it can do probably about, I don't know, it's pretty fast under the water. Um, and it doesn't like to bump into things. So it has obstacle avoidance system, all kinds of stuff on it. And you can launch, um, anything out of it. We launch guys out of it, sophisticated guys that go to sophisticated places and and do um, sophisticated things. I guess is the way we put it. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool, pretty cool little boat. We're in the midst of um, building a new one, uh, and um, we will um, 
see how that all works out. But it was a it was a fun time, and I loved the like I said, I love the why I love the water. Um, my workout uh, we had um, surf Tuesdays, so uh, that was our workout in the morning. We grab our surfboards, go out and surf for PT, and then come back in. And I got into uh, I lived on a boat because I was over there by myself most of the time. And, um, I would paddleboard into work or paddleboard once I got to work, but that was my, uh, my PT on Thursdays. So it was, uh, it was a fun place to be attached to. Um, we had, um, oh, and then, like I said, after I, I took over, um, this other job of being combat systems officer, then I went into running the schoolhouse for another submarine that we had over there at the time. And I can't talk about it, but I ran the schoolhouse for that for probably about a year and a half. And then the, uh, and then the boat burned up. How about that? Bad deal for Kirby. So I had no job after the boat had burned up and uh, the, uh, <laughs> that was, that was 2000, 2012 when that happened and the um it was just a it was a bad scene i wish uh it would have never burned up because i would probably still be in hawaii but my wife was out of time of it um because of the volcano erupting and the um the vog that settles over the island is has microscopic dust in it that anybody that has any kind of breathing problem will um We'll start coughing and hacking and they have to stay inside and in an air conditioning space. So my wife, we lived on a boat, so I had to get an air conditioner for the boat, uh, keep her inside. So it wasn't fun for her. So she, um, she left and came back to the States. And then once the, um, once the boat burned up, Kirby kind of followed her uh, here uh, to wind my career down at Warcom. So it was, uh, it was fun, but the Warcom job was taking care of the SDVs. So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, uh, I enjoyed the adventure of that. And, um, so after, so what was it? 2014 is when you retired and that was after 47 years. Yes. Well, part 47, give or take, you know, we got, um, you know, I mean, to pin the date down because I was a reservist for so long and those years are included in there. So what I tell everybody is 38 plus. <coughs> it makes it a whole lot easier. <laughs> then the, because um, when they start adding up the numbers, they go, how old were you? A hundred when you retired? I go, <laughs> no, no, not quite, not quite, but close, man. I, I think I'm, I'm one of the top 10% in how long I was able to stay. And I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad the Navy kept me and kept me off the streets. <laughs> so, And uh, I know in the SEAL teams, they have uh, like the longest serving person is called like a bullfrog. Were you a bullfrog? Oh, no, that's not a title I wanted because there was other, that once a bullfrog statue went to an officer, we never got it back, right? Okay. Because there was always new rules coming up. So even though I was the longest and the guy that was the bullfrog, was like a um, a young kid when I was in the teams. Um, 
the rule came up was you have to have consecutive service, active duty service. I didn't have that. So somebody else wanted, but I said, you know what? It's just something that's going to collect more dust. I don't want it anyway. So. <coughs> and you okay. retire in uh, 2014 and you had like a um, retirement ceremony. Uh, can you kind of talk about that a bit? Well, the retirement ceremony was, uh, was fantastic to say the least. Right. So the, um, I had, because I was the last active duty SEAL that fought in Vietnam with combats, um, we made a big deal out of it. My wife helped to push that envelope, I think. And the, uh, and then we got the SEAL foundation behind it and a number of other people behind it. And we had to move it to the Lowe's down on the strand because there were over 2000 people that came to my retirement. And so I, you know, and I had like five speakers. So it was a real blessing and it was my way of getting every Vietnam vet I could get there, there so that we could say thank you and a job well done. And that's what we tried to do. And that's where the focus of my retirement was at. Was it wasn't about me. It was about all those guys, because many of those guys never had that type of ceremony when they came home from Vietnam. So I tried to extend that to them. And, and I did. I think we did a wonderful, wonderful job. We got all of the um, uh, the Seawolf pilots and crews back there. Uh, the Seawolves were the um, were the people that supported us, um, risked their lives every day to come and get us out of the shit that we got ourselves into. Um, there's a video out on YouTube that says sea wolves and seals. You'll see my face and a part of it, but the, uh, but that is a great video they put out. And those guys, I can't say enough good things about, you know, it was a bunch of ragtag guys and it's the only organization that's ever been commissioned in Vietnam and decommissioned in Vietnam. It was never an organization in the United States. So a lot to be said about those guys and how they put aircraft together and how they flew them. I mean, the pilots, <coughs> they were in there helping bolt those things, those mini guns and rocket pods and everything else onto those, onto those birds. And they used them all the time. I mean, they're ability was like our their creative ability to put things on helos and make them work was something that's adapted by the army in Vietnam and something that's adapted today on helos that we operate out of today so yeah I can't say enough about those guys and they were all there so you know that made me feel good that's awesome and uh, yeah. who are some of your guest speakers oh Wow. Well, um, let's see. I had um, my instructor, Mother Moy, who was our class uh, proctor at the time. And he told the story about, you know, I was so short and the um, that I had a troll out there on the uh, on the line. And Oliveira, who was another one of our instructors, came out and spit on my forehead and said, you're too short, get out of here. And I took the spit off my nose and threw it on his boot. And I said, I'll be here when you're gone. So he made me jump in the bay and eat mud. 
this this is not a good start it's just not a good start so um you know after probably after hell week Oliveira had a whole different thought process about kirby right so that was that was interesting but he spoke um bob Rohrbeck, who was one of my class officers was kind of like the um uh, the mc and Bobby's fantastic guy, uh, has two sons that are in the teams today. Fantastic. <clears throat> and then, um, I think, uh, Mike Thornton, who I went through training with, got up and spoke, um, who was a medal of honor winner and everybody knows that. Well, Mike used to, uh, we would rib him all the time cause he was a big guy and all that kind of stuff. And when it came to the, um, when it came to the uh, dirty name on the uh, obstacle course, it was a, a three-tier kind of um, log PT. Well, Mike would always have to throw me to from one to two. I could get from two to three, but there was because I short arms and a big chest, I could not ever quite get to number two. So Mike would get on the log with me and just throw me up there. And I, we'd laugh and the instructor's caught wind of it and he go okay man you have to go through the weaver twice not then i go okay okay so so all the rest of the stuff was there but mike and i go back a long long way uh he was there talked uh, about our days together stuff like that and then um two-star admiral gary benelli got up um and talked about you know, the Navy and where the Navy had come. And Gary was in uh, class 50 as an enlisted guy, an Italian guy with big hair from New York. So that was, that was fun. He had a lot of fun, funny things to say. Right. And then, uh, um, um, there were one, was one other speaker. <coughs> I can't recall that now, but then my son, John got up and spoke and, uh, he, a lot of fun things. He just, a kid, but a man now and a father. So I was quite pleased to hear him get up and speak. Right. And, uh, yeah, we had, we had a fun, fun time at the, uh, at the re retirement. We had, um, the, uh, Mike brought down all of the, um, SEAL team museum stuff and we laid all that out. So it was, everybody loved that. They brought the old stoners down and got that there. And we had all kinds of different flags, all kinds of different uniforms and weapons and all that kind of stuff. I've got a bunch of stuff that a guy know, has donated to the SEAL Museum uh, here in San Diego. We just got to find a building and get, a, um, get all this valuable stuff inside the building, right? Because it's history. And that's kind of where I'm at today. If I can help preserve any of the history of the teams, I, I definitely want to do that. You know? I didn't know that about uh, having a museum in San Diego. That's pretty yeah. awesome. Because I'm aware of the one in, uh, I think it's Fort Pierce, Florida. I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in that one when they first started it. We're going, yeah, that's right. Get us over there. So very cool. Very, very cool. And, uh, and that one in, in Fort Pierce, Florida, does a wonderful business. It's busy all the time. We have had great curators of that uh, museum over the years. Um, 
and I hope it continues um, to be because it's really a tourist spot that people, as the reputation of SEAL Team continues, it'll always be a place for them to go to, you know? And that's where they hold the mustard down there at the museum at the beach right behind it. And they all just come down there and drink beer and barbecue and talk sea stories. <laughs> but and yeah, that's, that, hey, that's... That's Kirby's career and he's still going, you know, I mean, I was retired probably for uh, a couple of months before I got called back to work. So I went back to work running the lessons learned program over there from 2015 to, um, to retiring from that January, 2023. Oh, congrats. And then I got a call 10 days later to go back to work. So, <laughs> so now I'm still working. <laughs> It's good, man. You know, you never run out of needing the dough. So, you know, and if I can help, if I can help the Navy and I can help SEAL team in any way, I will do it. Right. Because it's given me a life I never, ever thought I would ever have. Right. So that's the, uh, and when you get, when you, when you're blessed with something like that, then you have to share it, you know, got to put it out, put it out there and, and let other people know that it's possible. And the last thing I wanted to uh, ask you about is your hat, uh, Saved in America. Can you talk about that organization, how you got involved, um, who you support? Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Saved in America is an organization that we put together uh, shortly after retired. <clears throat> it's a total voluntary organization. I read a white paper um, from a professor at USD that had done a white paper on human trafficking in the United States. I read the paper and couldn't believe it that it was happening here in San Diego. But San Diego is a drug corridor, just like Florida is, just like Texas is. So wherever you have a drug corridor, you have a lot of, um, what do I want to say? A lot of percentages of human trafficking happening. I never heard about human trafficking with American kids until I read this paper. And so I, I said, well, I, we have to put together something and go check this out. So we found about, about a rave that they were doing down on Pacific Coast Highway. <clears throat> and we went down there, it's probably 11 o'clock at night, surveyed the situation, saw a lot of older guys taking a lot of younger girls into this rave. Uh, and we sent one of our investigators in with a recording set of glasses and <clears throat> what we got out of it was unbelievable what they were having these young girls do on stage and everything else. And, you know, they had recruiters there. So what are you young girls doing? Can we get you out of the house on the weekend so they can sell them all those kind of things. So all that stuff was happening. We turned that tape over to the San Diego PD, San Diego PD responded on it. And it was the Russians that we had allowed to come into our country that were actually starting these kind of things because that's what they were used to. So the um, so they were able to work on that. And that's kind of was the founding mission. Um, one of them, I want to say one of them that got saved in America um, started. And we've been working since that date to recover children that either are runaways or are put into human trafficking worlds 
uh, and their parents, how it works is their parents, we have a website that I welcome everybody to go to. It's called savedinamerica.org. Uh, and it tells you exactly what we do, but we work directly for the parents. The parents have to contact us. We get a power of attorney from the parents because we're working with minors. Once we have that power of attorney, we will locate that child. And in some cases, before we get the power of the attorney signed, we will locate that child. We'll go out and make a positive ID on that child. And then we'll call in local law enforcement. Local law enforcement know we're working in the area because we notified them ahead of time that we're working in the area. Once we know that we've got the right child identified, we will call law enforcement in to recover that child. It's not our job to break down doors. We, the police will recover that child and that child will be given back to us because we have the power of attorney. If we can get the parents there so that they can recover their child, then we will do exactly that. So that's how we have been working um, for the past so many years. And um, it has worked very successfully. Uh, one child at a time. We don't look at anything more than that. And we look at working for the parents. We charge the parents absolutely nothing. Nobody pays. Um, we just need donations. And we have a lot of philanthropic people that support us. We're always looking for more philanthropic people that will support our cause and get these kids away from the human traffickers and get them back to their parents. Uh, one of the big things that we are finding is that we have a lot of great NGOs in uh, San Diego, and there's NGOs all over the country that have wonderful programs to get these kids back into uh, the mainstream of life. Because um, after these events, they've lost their innocence, they've been shot up with heroin, fentanyl, whatever drug you can imagine. Uh, so they're in La La Land most of the time that they're with these people. So that's how that's how Saved in America works. Thank you for asking. I appreciate that very much. It's a great organization. We are always looking for special operations people uh, to volunteer their time to work with us. Uh, we also need like administrators, um, those type of things. Uh, and certainly we need sponsors. So if there's sponsors out there that can support us, um, and we do a fundraiser and bring it, bring Saved in America to your city um, and meet with police officers, let them know how we work. We are an asset to them. And that's what works out perfectly. In Las Vegas, we have a great working relationship with Las Vegas PD, as well as San Diego. And we're moving into Texas. We have some Texas people that are supporting us there so we can get down there. Uh, we're looking for somebody in Florida to work with um, that because that's another drug corridor and keep our young kids out of harm's way. Um, we just don't have enough bandwidth to take on foreign nationals or anything else or do we, we don't go to foreign countries and rescue kids. We stay right here at home and take care of American kids for American families. That's amazing. And uh, do you know how many children you, your, your uh, team have recovered? We've covered over 260 kids and got them back to their parents. Wow. So yeah, pretty good track record. hundred percent. If we go after a child, we're going to find them. Our longest, our longest 
trip has been across the United States um, from a young lady in California um, left and we she was being sold to in Florida out of a tent to some field workers. And we interjected that whole thing. So we got her back to her mom, um, one, one happy woman. So that was the, uh, that's the longest race we've had so far across the country. Big job. Anyway, and that's, you know, and that's what we use the money for. I mean, I need the money for airplane things, car rentals, hotel rooms to keep our guys uh, engaged. Our guys don't get paid. They get paid per diem just so they can eat and all that kind of stuff. But they're total volunteers. So very cool, man. Well, uh, I appreciate you coming on the Late Night History Podcast. This will be round two. And um, my last thing, uh, do you have any closing thoughts? Well, I, you know, I think the uh, my closing thought is that, you know, it goes back to uh, the Vietnam thing is that the, you know, the people of the world get along perfectly in most cases, right? We have, they have big government and our government is getting bigger and bigger by the moment. Why do we need them, right? Why do I need senators that lie about everything their entire lives just to get elected? Why do we need senators and representatives that are want to push shit to our kids that nobody, none of us have ever gone through anything like that? The critical race theory, are you shitting me? You know, kids, you know, I mean, kids don't know color. So stop trying to push it to them, right? This woke thing about not knowing what gender you are, Okay, God made two, man and woman. If you don't believe that, ask the animals, okay? If you want to get down that low, ask a monkey. If there's, it's a man monkey or a woman monkey, there ain't nobody in the middle, right? So get, pull your head out of your ass, America, you know, and realize that these, there's people out there that are trying to feed you shit every day, right? And the soldiers, the soldiers of this nation know better. The soldiers that have been the combat to protect our freedom, we know better. So that's the whole thing is don't let politicians, you know, get in the middle of your belief about what America is. Politicians, I think we need less of them, not more. Right. And the same thing with newspapers. If if these guys are going to tell us or try to skew our lives one way or the other, stay out of our business. Right. You were there. The Constitution gives you freedom of, of the press, but it doesn't give you freedom to spout bullshit to every one of us and say, oh, this is the truth, believe it. Like, you're, like the kids we used to go to high school with, they were liars. And if they told that lie enough times, somebody would believe it. So that's not us. That's not what military people in America do, right? We're ground truth. It doesn't matter what race or creed or anything else you come from. We're all militaries and we're all Americans. So let's start thinking like that. That's my closing thoughts.